What's a honeyfuggle? And why did Theodore Roosevelt call William Howard Taft one? We'll dig into that and 100 other presidential pot shots next. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. In this episode, our time machine checks in with the 44 men who've served as our presidents as they roast, criticize, and belittle fellow commanders-in-chief. And who wouldn't want to hear Benjamin Harrison mock Grover Cleveland? I hear he did it on two non-consecutive occasions. Our guide on this journey is presidential historian Mike Purdy, who brings us 101 Presidential Insults, what they really thought about each other, and what it means to us. Mike Purdy is the founder of PresidentialHistory.com, where you can find his award-winning Presidential History blog. He's also a regular contributor to TheHill.com, and you've seen his work at CNN, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Reuters, Bloomberg, The Huffington Post, BBC, all those places wonks like me like to root around for historic gems from yesterday that inform our understanding of politics today. You can follow Mike at Presidential Historian on Instagram, on Twitter at PresHistory, or follow his Facebook page, Mike Purdy, Presidential History. Okay, now that we've taken our seats at the ongoing Friars Club Roast, hosted at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, let's join Mike Purdy and giggle at 101 Presidential Insults. I'm joined on the line by Mike Purdy, author of 101 Presidential Insults, What They Really Thought About Each Other and What It Means to Us. Thanks for making time to trade insults with the History Author Show, Mike. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure and good to be here. This is a fun departure for me because I usually live so far in the past as far as this show goes, and yet my daily life is consumed with news and politics all the time. We're not really going to be trading insults with each other, however, as much as people might like a little change to a morning zoo format, but we will dig into the ways our commanders-in-chief sniped at each other over the two centuries of America's lifetime. It's something that maybe we don't associate with some of those powdered wigs photos or the black and white Gilded Age photos. For instance, I mentioned at the very top of the show that Theodore Roosevelt called William Howard Taft a honeyfuggle. And I scratched my head, and I know a lot of that Gilded Age and Victorian era lingo, but I couldn't figure out what a honeyfuggle was. So can you enlighten us? What is a honeyfuggle? Well, you mean you don't use that every day in your everyday speech? <laughs> I will now. Well, according to Warren Harding's biographer, uh, Francis Russell, who wrote the book The Shadow of Blooming Grove, he said that a honey, whether it's a honeyfuggle or a honeyfugler, is a forgotten but then fairly common Midwestern term, meaning a mealy-mouthed wheedler. So you go, <laughs> what's a wheedler? Well, it's a person who influences and persuades through smooth and flattering words. 
So, you know, maybe there's some similarities there with some of the characteristics of a demagogue. So he couldn't just have called him a demagogue because he was Theodore Roosevelt. Yes. <laughs> it's so quotable, things we just forget about. For instance, my hat is in the ring and the lunatic fringe. Yes. That was another one of his. Those are all little things that, that he tossed out. The bully pulpit, which it's very appropriate for your book because people now associate the word bully with pushing somebody around and picking on someone. But he just meant it was great. That was his catchphrase, for lack of a better word. So who better to have as the first question than Theodore Roosevelt? Because I think if he was alive in this day and age, certainly his Twitter feed would be one that would be on fire. And he would have been just tearing into both Taft and Wilson when he faces them in 1912. Absolutely. I mean, I think we have to go back to 1912, that election, to find the level of language that we see in today's society. I mean, 1912 was a pretty vicious campaign where you had, you know, the incumbent President Taft defending himself against uh, the Democrat Woodrow Wilson and then the challenger Theodore Roosevelt, who bolted the Republican Party. And Roosevelt really let loose in that election. And Taft ended up responding because, uh, you know, he was being attacked. And, and Wilson got into the fray as well. It was quite the election. It's something to think that they were friends, too. There were so many what we'd call narratives today about how these guys had been friends. It was a it was a betrayal, a stabbing in the back, depending which side you, you were for. If you were for Theodore Roosevelt, you would have felt that he was betrayed. Taft betrayed his legacy. And if you were Taft, you would have felt, well, this upstart TR, we told you when he was in New York State that we couldn't really trust him. And now he's he's betrayed the principles of the party because he's trying to wrest it away. And actually, it had been wrested away from him, really, at that convention. And so here we go. That's a great narrative. And then you have, I picture Woodrow Wilson there with his fingers steepled saying, ha ha, they're, they're doing my work for me. It's just, right. as somebody said, you may remember who, it's just a question for TR and Taft of which corpse is going to get the most flowers at their funeral. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it was really an intense time. And yeah. uh, some of those things they do want to take back later. And yet they always work us all into a frenzy at the time. Yeah, it's really kind of a sad story, the the story of T.R. and Taft, because like you said, they were best of buddies in their early 30s. They met in Washington, D.C. They were good friends. They helped each other out various times during their careers. And then, of course, they had this falling out after T.R.'s presidency, where Roosevelt thinks that Taft is too conservative, is one of the issues that caused the falling out. Another issue is that you know, Roosevelt just wanted to be the center of attention, and he didn't know what to do with himself as a former president. And then the third thing that I think caused the breakup in their friendship is that after the election, when Taft won, Taft wrote a letter, a thank you letter to Roosevelt. And Taft was not particularly politically astute. And so he just kind of said stuff. And so he said to Roosevelt, you know, I want to thank you for everything you've done to help me get elected. You've done more than anyone else to ensure my election, except my brother, Charlie. <laughs> except my brother, Charlie? What, what did Charlie have to do with it? Well, Charlie helped raise money for Taft's campaign. But Roosevelt took great offense at that because in his mind, he had handed Taft the presidency on a silver platter. And he really had. He anointed Taft and said, you know, you're the one I want to follow me. So they had this horrible breakdown in their friendship. 
so Roosevelt goes on the attack in 1912. One point during the campaign, Taft is found on a train by a reporter, and he is weeping. And he says, Theodore was my best friend. And, and, and here they are just in this, you know, mudslinging bloodbath of a campaign. So it's a very tragic story, really. It is. And I, it occurs to me that here we are talking about 101 presidential insults, your book. And Theodore Roosevelt, as you mentioned, there wanted to be the star. His daughter, Alice, said he wanted to be the bride at every wedding, the baby at every christening, the corpse at every funeral. He just had to be the star. Mm -hmm. And it is a riveting time. And you have such a character, such a charismatic president. And Taft really is a sad sack because he doesn't even want the job of president. He would rather have TR's friendship. And so you look at those and that's something that you do here in 101 Presidential Insults is that you give us that background. So this isn't just a book that's you listing quotes and they're just floating out there in the ether. It's not a quote-a-day calendar or a simple list or anything like that. You break down who said what and why. You give us some background like you just did there of the honeyfuggle insult that, that TR slings at Taft. That context is important because that makes this a book of history, not a book of quotes. So describe how you went about documenting these colorful jabs, or were you able to just pull this off the top of your head as you did right there about the 1912 election and have a guide already about what you wanted to talk about? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I didn't pull it all off the top of my head. I've been working on this for many, many years. Many years ago in my reading and research, I started noticing things about the relationships between these 44 men who have served as president. And I started seeing that some of them said really nice things about each other, and some said some pretty nasty things about each other. So then I did want to make this book more than, like you say, just a book of quotes. And I wanted to paint the picture of what was really going on. And were they a president or a former president, or was this before their presidency? And what happened there. So, you know, to that end, I've included notes at the back of the book, you know, identifying where I obtained the quote. And I've tried to use primary sources wherever I could or reputable secondary sources. So I do include the date and the occasion for the statement. And in doing the research, you know, I found that there were some really good, juicy quotes that I couldn't track down. And so that I had to delete them from the book. And that was too bad that I had to do that. You know, there's a quote attributed to Harry Truman about Dwight Eisenhower, that he was a squirrel head. (laughs) But I also found that, you know, Truman maybe said that about Richard Nixon. But in neither case was I able to find a primary source reference that would validate it. And so sometimes these quotes just take on a life of their own. Another one that I was sorry I couldn't include is, again, going back to the 1912 campaign where Roosevelt characterizes Taft, and he says that Taft didn't have the brains of a guinea pig. (laughs) Well, it's very memorable. It's very funny, but it's not there. And so I reached out to a number of biographers and presidential libraries. I did. Um, I looked at existing quote books and biographies, did online research, newspapers, old newspapers. And so that's how I tried to 
find these. There's one very interesting, or a couple of interesting quotes I'll tell you about in terms of the story. One is this quote that Thomas Jefferson makes about John Adams. And he says that Adams is distrustful, obstinate, excessively vain, and takes no counsel from anyone. Well, I had the hardest time tracking that down. Most sources just didn't have any notes about where it came from. Finally, I found one that had a footnote. I went to that footnote. It took me back to another footnote that took me back to another footnote. So you kind of follow the trail. And I finally found the quote. The only problem is the quote was in French. And (laughs) so what happened is it is a letter from one Frenchman to another recounting his conversation with Thomas Jefferson. And so I had to, I went to my daughter who actually is able to read French and I said, okay, what does this say? And it was an accurate translation with, you know, what we end up seeing. So, you know, you kind of follow the trail to do that. There's another very interesting one that I feel really good about in terms of trying to correct the historical record. James Madison, as a former congressman, writes to Thomas Jefferson about John Adams. And what you see in many places is the phrase, the rash measures of our hot-headed executive. And that's what I always saw as hot-headed executive. Well, in doing the research, I found one reference that said it was our hot-heated executive. And I thought, well, clearly that's wrong. Everybody else says hot-headed. That makes more sense. But because I found that conflict, I wanted to try to resolve that. So I went back and I ended up going back all the way to the actual letter that Madison wrote to Jefferson, founded on microfilm. And it is very clear in Madison's handwriting that that is a T and not a D. It is hot-heated executive. And yet the vast majority of references that you'll find call it hot-headed. So I feel good about having once and for all corrected the historical record on that. This is the kind of thing that I love about talking to a presidential historian, and not just a presidential historian, but somebody who really finds digging into this stuff fascinating. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're scrolling through Facebook or a news article or when they do interviews of various people in Congress, a senator or something will be a room of the White House, wherever they are. And you'll say, well, that, that's James K. Polk's foot. I wonder where that, where's that photo behind them? You, know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you say, hey, uh, in fact, the movie Beer Fest, there's a painting on the wall, one of the many, it's supposed to be these old Bavarian guys, these brewmasters. And I said, that guy's James K. Polk, and it's James K. Polk. He's holding a beer stein, and they just threw him. Somebody decided to throw him in there for, for no reason that I can discern. But <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of thing you pick up on. And drunk is even tossed at TR. They even claimed that he was a drunk, which he was none too pleased about. That's a, that's a common one, especially early in the Republic. The distinction of your book is, though, that you have these men – insulting each other. This is not just a book of insults of everybody, which you could have very easily done. That would have been that would have been a much longer book, I'm sure, than 101 presidential insults, probably be about 10,001. That's a distinction that I wanted to make because we don't want to see 
presidents or anybody punching down. We don't want to see the New England Patriots play a grade school football team because they would kill them and they would really hurt them. And it just bothers, I think, our sense of fair play. We don't want to see people beat up on the field of politics. So how did that idea of parity play? Because I mentioned, for instance, that Taft was a sad sack, that I felt bad for him, that TR is beating up on him. And not to let TR muscle his way in here again and take over, but if you're picking on somebody and you say, these presidents aren't really even, then it can be a little bit off-putting and kind of bother you. So how did you decide that? How did you narrow it down to who says what about who? Because this is a book you would want to read, not a book of somebody just slinging insults at the little people in the cheap seats. Right, right. Well, I mean, there is a sense of parody here in that they're all presidents at one time. Um, but when they made the statements, they might not have been president, and the person they spoke about might not have been president then. So what I've done is look at these 44 men who've held the office of presidency and examine times that they've written or spoken about the other 43 men. So, you know, maybe the most unfair and unequal treatments that we see are those that are said about a deceased president who obviously has no opportunity to fight back. For example, Theodore Roosevelt, when he was just a New York State Assemblyman in 1882, he took a pot shot at Thomas Jefferson, who had died in 1826. <laughs> and he called Jefferson the most incapable executive that ever filled the presidential chair. So no love lost between them there. And now they sit next to each other on Mount Rushmore. And you can almost imagine Roosevelt kind of looking out of the corner of his eye, disgusted that he has to sit next to our third president. We could also look at a one-term congressman, Abraham Lincoln, who dared to publicly criticize the then current president, James Polk, in a speech on the floor of the House of Representatives. He called Polk a bewildered, confounded, and miserably perplexed man. So Lincoln wasn't famous then. He was just a congressman, a one-term congressman. Polk was the president. So you have, depending on the role these men played at the time they wrote or spoke the statements, it might have been equal treatment or an unequal treatment. The thing about that is that you have these guys insulting each other and saying these things about each other, and then they get in the big chair. And to some extent, it might help them to have a thicker skin because they accept it. Whereas some of them don't really expect to get the job. Truman goes the hard way, who gets thrown into the job when his predecessor dies. And he actually goes back, doesn't he? And he, he compiles a list of what he thinks of each of his predecessors. That must have been a good resource for you if that's out there. That's the impression I got. I don't know if he did all of them, but he mentioned a bunch of them and said what he thought about them. Yes. Truman, after his presidency, he spoke quite a bit or wrote quite a bit about many of the other presidents. and He was very opinionated. It showed that Truman understood history. He may have been a little bit harsh on some, but I, I always think when we look at these quotes whether it's Truman speaking about other presidents or some of the others that are in the book, that what we want to do is we want to say, is there a kernel of truth in it? Or is this a quote that is really just kind of off the wall and reflects some kind of a rivalry between the men? And I find in a lot of cases, these quotes really do have a kernel of truth to it. I also find that many of the quotes that somebody wrote or spoke it's interesting how 
it could actually apply to that person themselves, what they're saying about someone else. So there's a lot of different ways to look at it. You chose five presidents for the cover of 101 Presidential Insults. Whoever you found in the White House at the time that you published the book, this is a long-term project for you, would have earned that top spot. But you're fortunate also to have somebody whose trademark is the biting remark as president. You might not have gotten that in every president. It's the four others, though, that might intrigue readers. We mentioned Theodore Roosevelt and Harry Truman. John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon are both on there. They had a heated campaign against each other. Also, former friends turned political enemies, political foes, certainly. Their faces are all recognizable for a cover, perhaps Truman the least so in the imagination. Sometimes people confuse him with FDR because the glasses are a little similar, the round face. How did you choose them? You have a very good illustrator here that did it, Victor Juhasz. Faces are great for a cover. They catch your attention when you're browsing in a bookstore. But was there a method behind who you were going to choose? And these are all 20th century guys. So no Washington, no Lincoln who are equally recognizable. How did you choose Insulters in Chief 26, 33, 35, and 37 for 101 presidential insults? Yeah, great question. First, uh, a comment about Harry Truman. And you're absolutely right. When I show people this book cover where I'm talking to them about it, Truman is the one that they have a hard time with. Hmm. So he's the least recognizable of that group. I think you're right. I think you're right that obviously the current president needed to be on the cover because of the frequency and the viciousness of his insults against others and not just presidents. But Theodore Roosevelt, Truman, and Nixon were really some of the most prolific and opinionated insulters. And so I felt that they deserved a place at the table, or maybe we should say on the cover. So I included Kennedy because he's very recognizable. He's admired. People think he's eloquent. And so it may come as a surprise some of the things that he said about others. But, you know, in private, his language could be pretty nasty and pretty salty. For example, he called Eisenhower a lying son of a and the word rhymes with which. <laughs> and he used the same phrase, which was apparently a favorite phrase of his, to describe Richard Nixon, who he also went on to accuse of being a very dangerous man. So I think you've got in Kennedy kind of this dual image, this charismatic, glamorous, youthful, energetic president, witty, but then in private, he could be pretty tough. And so that comes out then. And so Kennedy's included on there for some of those reasons and also for recognizability. And I wanted to make sure that the pictures on the cover were recognizable, other than, you know, Truman is somewhat of a problem for some people, rather than, you know, including Franklin Pierce and Chester Arthur, you know, that nobody would in a million years be able to pick out uh, from the cover. I wanted it to be clear that this is a presidential book. And and it certainly could have included Lincoln or Washington, but chose to pick some of the presidents who did more of this than others. I, I would have picked out Chester Arthur. <laughs> the, 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 I would read a book just of Arthur. <laughs> the, 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 the big side whiskers, and as yeah. uh, Woodrow Wilson said, the non-entity with side whiskers. 
Yeah, the mutton chops always give them away, right? But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and those guys—that is something that you don't think of. We we like to think of those as the good old days, and in part because there hasn't been a book like One Hundred and One Presidential Insults. We tend to shy away from that. For instance, the vice president who said that the vice presidency was not worth people will quote a bucket of warm spit. Well, he didn't say spit. He said another warm bodily fluid. Right. (laughs) But that's the thing. We think of those days, those black and white photos, very posed, everybody looking very gentlemanly and stately. We think, well, George Washington, not only did he never tell a lie, but he probably never called anyone a tool. And yet I read in 101 presidential insults, that's exactly what he called James Monroe. That's how he described him as a tool. It sounds very modern. It It was in a larger context. But Those guys were not all just all the time controlling their emotions, and Washington was probably the most controlled at all. That's really an interesting thing to delve into, and it makes you realize that they are very human people. They're very human, and so you're referring to um, Washington is reading a book that Monroe has written, And, and Washington and Monroe had a had a difficult history, and so Washington writes in the margin of the book. Uh, He says that there's abundant evidence of him, Monroe, being a mere tool of the French government. But you're right. Washington was this very controlled man, and he was very concerned about what his reputation would be in history. It's easy, I think, for us to think that in this age of Trump, that Trump's the only one who ever insulted anyone. But that's why it's important for us to know our history And to realize a couple of things. First, that insults by the presidents about other presidents have been around since the founding of our republic. And and secondly, that once we understand our history, we can compare the nature, the intensity, the frequency of these insults to what we see today. And when we do this, it's easier to answer the question of whether what we're hearing today is normal or an aberration. So, I mean, this is the great value of history that we hopefully learn from it. It fleshes out what we know about these men. We can have an idea of what their personalities were like. And then maybe when we don't hold back a word, we would like to. William McKinley, for instance, they asked him why he didn't lose his temper when somebody like Tom Platt, the senator, the Republican boss of the party in New York State that sticks him or thinks he's sticking him with Theodore Roosevelt. Why don't you just get mad at him? And he actually is one of the few people that that McKinley just snaps about. And he says, I discovered that it was much, much easier to hold back than it was to deal with the consequences of just letting loose for that temporary pleasure. And I I think of that (laughs) sometimes, too, I'll tell you. I just like, let's hold back. And so maybe that's 101 presidential insults held back. Maybe that would be your next book that would (laughs) sort of teach us. I guess, you know, (laughs) I would have really liked to have said that. And that's, in fact, what some of your sources are. There are things they did say in private that they didn't say public. And that gives us another layer of the window. So that's not the tweet to somebody on the campaign trail or the thing said to a room full of supporters. That's something where you see, ah, for all that smiling that they did, they were just as divided and just as annoyed with the other guy and, and thought the same things as we do today. Right. Paul Brandis, a USA Today columnist, bureau chief at the nation's capital and author of Under This Roof, The White House and the Presidency, wrote that you have, quote, a gift for discovering just the right anecdotes that help us understand our presidents better. 
Mike, like you, I love reading about our presidents. I love talking about them. But more than that, I love those little nuggets that you've brought together to bring those official portraits to life here in 101 Presidential Insults. We talked a little bit about your research process and how you did make notes and things, but these weren't just things that stuck in your mind. This wasn't an easy job where you just went, oh, hey, let me just write down my top 101, which you could have done if you had done a word a day calendar. It's clear you have many of these right at your fingertips, but you wanted this book to be more than that. So how did you go about cataloging them and deciding which 101 would earn a place in your book? Great question. So I, like I said, I've been thinking about this project in some form or another for, you know, 30 plus years, probably through reading and research. And so I'm reading a presidential biography. I find out things about the relationship that a president had with another president. I find these quotes. And and so I've got both positive and negative quotes as well that these men have made about each other. And I decided that, again, given the times that we live in, that it would be important to put those out there as a means to start having a conversation about, okay, if these men did this, and if they've done this historically over time, what does that mean about us as a society, and how do we create a more civil society So I think that I I wanted to have these quotes reach a wider audience. And so when I went through the quotes that I have, I was looking for quotes that were memorable, quotes that I could document, quotes that tended to kind of characterize the nature of their relationship or that were a good characterization of certain attributes of the person they were writing or speaking about. So it's interesting, you know, I I mentioned that I've collected positive quotes as well, and I may do, you know, 101 presidential kudos as well. But one of my favorites on that is, and you've probably heard the story where John F. Kennedy is in the White House and he's entertaining Nobel Prize winners there. And he says to them, he says, never before has so much intelligence been gathered together in the White House, except perhaps when Thomas Jefferson dined here alone. And it's just this great, great quote of, you know, complimenting Thomas Jefferson. And of course, we talked about the Theodore Roosevelt one saying he's the most incapable executive. So there's lots of really good things that these men have said about each other as well. But I wanted to focus on the insults because that's kind of the day that we live in right now. And again, just like us, where we love someone, but then when they make us mad, we let out against them. They are just like us. And I find, especially when I've watched the last several presidential inaugurals, I've been watching this stuff even when I was a little kid. And I know that it was something that Jimmy Carter wanted to do, walk to his inaugural, because he felt it would be more democratic with a small D to just get out there among the people. Now, today, they probably wouldn't allow it because of the Secret Service. We've slowly chipped away at that sort of stuff. But that makes it very royal. That makes it all very pomp and circumstance. And I think that, speaking of Jefferson, probably not something he would think would be befitting of a republic. He probably wouldn't have liked that. This last inauguration that we had in 2016 was much smaller without all of those big balls and things for various reasons. But you don't need to have the president of a republic going to all of these different events, in my opinion, and and showing the face and just people who can afford the $1,000 plate. And so I think if we remember that 
they weren't of royal blood. They weren't like the queen mum out there or the queen herself and waving with the one hand, <laughs> very carefully wearing gloves. Mm-hmm. I like that idea. I, I don't. I want to look up to the presidents and respect the presidents and all of our leaders. And when I read about them, I find something to like about even somebody like James K. Polk, who's buying and selling human beings from the White House. And John Tyler, also not a thrill to read about. A lot of mistakes made by the later ones before the Civil War. But you want to know that they were indeed human. And I like that. Yes, they were all incredibly human. And and that's part of what, you know, I wanted to communicate in the book is that, okay, we can hold them up on a pedestal somewhat. Okay, maybe some more than others. And we think that they are somehow royal. But ultimately, yes, very human. They have the same set of emotions and feelings. They've got huge egos. They have a wide range of emotions. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, who we've talked about, you know, a lot of people can identify with him. He was petrified of public speaking. And, you know, so we don't think about that. We think, well, he was president, but he didn't like it. He preferred to do writing. Or we could look at Abraham Lincoln, certainly one of our greatest, if not our greatest presidents. And Lincoln, throughout his life, suffered from chronic depression. And that can be so immobilizing for somebody who has depression. Yet Lincoln somehow was able to rise above that, certainly struggled with it, but rise above it. Or we can go to Calvin Coolidge, Silent Cal who also suffered from depression in the White House, but it was kind of a um, circumstantial depression. So his teenage son was playing tennis on the White House lawn and his foot got infected. Mm. And a week later, his son was dead. And Coolidge writes later after his presidency, he says that when his son died, the power and the glory of the presidency went with him. So he had depression. Franklin Pierce was depressed and turned to drinking. And probably one of the reasons is just months before Pierce's inauguration, Pierce and his wife and 11-year-old son were on a train, and the train was involved in a wreck, and they saw their 11-year-old son killed in front of their eyes. Terribly killed. um, Which just totally wiped them out, and understandably so. So you can go through the list of the presidents and you can look at certain things that happened to them and uh, certain ways that they they expressed their humanity because they were very, very human. Two terrible things there. Coolidge, his son dies from the dye in his sock is what poisons and infects his son's blister from out playing tennis. Mm-hmm. And then Benny Pierce almost decapitated in front of his parents. Right. So then maybe you say you're not catching a president as best. You could see where anybody in those circumstances may skip the niceties and go after somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You're enjoying my conversation with Mike Purdy, author of 101 Presidential Insults, what they really thought about each other and what it means to us. You can find our guest online at presidentialhistory.com presidential historian on Instagram, on Twitter at Prez History, or follow his Facebook page, Mike Purdy Presidential History. Feather Schwartz Foster, who I interviewed about her book, Mary Lincoln's Flannel Pajamas, writes of 101 presidential insults, quote, 
What a nifty and enjoyable little tome of caustic, colorful, insightful, and frequently witty comments by our presidents about each other. They were indeed human, with all the sparkle and foibles of real people. Mike, I absolutely adore Feather S. Foster. The word sparkle applies so well to her and the passion that she writes about presidents and their wives. She calls the first ladies her gals, which is really a, a sweet and endearing thing. So her stamp of approval for 101 presidential insults was reason enough for me to recommend it. I knew I'd be getting an enjoyable, factual, informative read. She packs a lot into that review, and one of those words there is one we keep coming back to, which is human. You know, we hold our presidents to a higher standard, and as it should be, so does the Constitution, but they are human. I know when we're covering campaigns and I hear them say, well, such and such candidate needs to be humanized, and I always think, I realize it's not literal what they're saying, but they are human, if nothing else. They're not, you know, you take off the suit or you take off the dress and underneath is not just another dress. They are real people. I wanted you to say a word about that again, about that human aspect of it and about people picking up the book to hear something like or read something like Reagan casting Carter as a little schmuck. And again, now that we look back at the history record, maybe I'm thinking a two-term guy who's very successful doesn't want to pick on a smaller guy that's only one term and, and leaves the White House with the shadow of the hostage crisis and so much over his head. But it can help remind us that they're not kings, but just one of us, can it? Well, yes. I mean, it's quotes like Reagan's about Carter that reminds us that they are all too human. And while we might want to hold them to a higher standard, the truth is that their writings and their speech, it reminds us that they all have clay feet and that they're just like the people they govern. Flawed humans with raw emotions that flare up occasionally in the heat of the campaign or when two men find themselves in a rivalry over personality or policies. And certainly my book reminds us that they're not exalted. They're not kings. You know, it seems to me that we often expect perfection in our presidents or our presidential candidates. And there have obviously been countless candidates whose fortunes have dramatically fallen when something negative has been revealed about them, like we're shocked somehow. So I can think of Edmund Muskie weeping, you know, if it was really weeping or if it was just, you know, the, the, the moisture of the air or George Romney coming back saying he'd been brainwashed or Gary Hart being caught in the uh, by a media stakeout with his affair with Donna Rice. So, I mean, Bill Clinton and Donald Trump somehow managed to survive sexual accusations and Clinton survived that, you know, he didn't inhale marijuana, but we're somehow shocked by these things. So I think it's really important when we look at the crop of candidates for 2020 or any election year, that we need to be reminded that none of them are perfect and that they're all human. I do think that character really matters in a candidate or a president. And, and I'd say it matters even more than their politics, more than their policies, because it's in their character that reveals what kind of a person they are. Are they a person of goodwill? Are they ready, able, willing to work with others and to forge consensus and to move our country forward? That's really particularly important in our polarized society that we have that. I, I've actually just written 
an op-ed opinion piece for thehill.com that I just sent in last night that talks about um, how should we be evaluating presidential candidates and that it's not just on their policies, but that we want to look at some other kinds of issues that go deeper that are going to be more indicative of what kind of president they would end up being. It's something that is specific to the person, too. You could say something to somebody as one president, and then you say it to a person as another president. And, for instance, if people remember Seinfeld, when George Costanza, he, that guy tells him, oh, he started talking to a woman by grabbing a piece of her blouse and just saying, oh, is that silk? And George tries it, and, of course, he's a, <laughs> a little short, bald, creepy character, right? And the woman it demands that he be fired because he he's touched her, which you just shouldn't do. And yet you can see where some presidents do get away with that kind of thing. And it can be frustrating. You know, Bill Clinton, when he was running against Bob Dole, Bob Dole famously says with exasperation, where's the outrage? Because he's expecting people to be outraged by it. But that's part of politics. And I think if you go into it with that, for instance, with Ronald Reagan and him saying that Carter's a schmuck. I read an interview, kind of an obscure one, probably on C-SPAN or something like that. I just read the transcript. And Walter Mondale said, gosh, if I wasn't running against him, I probably would have voted for him too. Because look at all the press. I mean, the, the cowboy guy, just so likable. That old thing about the art of diplomacy being that you could tell someone to go to hell in such a way that they look forward to the trip. And I think that's part of it, too. Maybe we call that charisma. Maybe we call it likability. Some of these things that are sort of ephemeral that the listener gets to decide what that means. That term humanizing again. John Nance Garner saying as vice president, who I mentioned earlier, that the vice presidency is not worth a bucket of warm spit. And again, not saying spit, but those are things I think the self-deprecating nature, if you insult yourself, that's something that goes a long way with voters, because then you're bringing us into exactly the same vein that 101 presidential insults does, where, hey, this guy gets it. That was one of the things that did help Bill Clinton, and that does help Donald Trump, is that when you come onto the scene, you make that first impression, and Bill Clinton's saying, well, you know what, you always told you I like the ladies. I'm, I'm going to give him a really long leeway, whereas if it's somebody like Jerry Falwell, who you catch with somebody, you say, well, that guy was, he was here lecturing and making me feel bad about myself, you know? So that, I think that that goes a long way. I like the idea of these insults that sometimes they can be playful or sometimes they can be, you're a honey fuggle and they don't take an insult to it because they know you and you're saying, hey, I'm allowed to push you around a little bit. And I love that part of this book too. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think what we're looking for is we want our presidents and our presidential candidates to be genuine. And, and that's why when we we get somebody who makes a self-deprecating comment about themselves, I mean, John F. Kennedy was great at that. There were concerns by many when he was running about the role that his father was playing in terms of basically buying the election and financing it and Kennedy says at a, a campaign stop, he pulls something out of his pocket and says, oh, I just got a telegram from my daddy and says, don't buy a single more vote than is necessary. I'll be blank if I'm going to pay for a landslide. <laughs> That's right. And this was the criticism of Kennedy. So he, he addresses it head on rather than trying to be above it all and to pretend that he's not human. And, and so I think this 
characteristic of being genuine, of being charismatic, of being likable, these things go a long way in terms of who actually ends up getting elected. I think of the 2000 election, and despite what we now know the aftermath would turn into, it was one that was almost at times a battle of the self-deprecating quip about themselves. That's something that did go a long way in that, and maybe to helping the country through that disputed election afterwards and the, and the aftermath in Florida. Because here you had Al Gore dealing with these exaggerations that he was making and saying he'd been somewhere that he wasn't. And if you found one of those things maybe with somebody who didn't handle it that well, it would have been different. Plus, it helped that he'd been in the public eye for so long. He spent two terms as vice president. People were willing to forgive some of those things or give him the benefit of the doubt. And so often, a cutting insult or a self-deprecating remark, an insult about yourself or others, it can really help you. So this is not just in 101 presidential insults, something that doesn't relate to politics. It's very much part of politics. And I wanted to read the book because of that and get an idea. How did they deploy those, whether it was in private or public? If it was their frustration in private, that tells us something. If they were tearing into somebody on the campaign trail, that tells us something else. That character question you mentioned, that's very important. I believe Ronald Reagan makes that comment about Carter being a schmuck, just in a scrum, just in a, his meeting and pressing the flesh, I believe. Alphonse D'Amato, when he said that about Schumer, when he was a congressman challenging him, he called him a putz. And maybe if D'Amato had come out and said, hey, some of my best friends are putz. I'm a putz. I don't think it would have worked, but it might have. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I, I love about this book. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, so many of the quotes nowadays, as you said, are so much more public. Uh, you might say something in private, and somehow that gets reported. You know, we can think about when Mitt Romney was running for president and he's giving this private talk to donors and somebody records his comment about the 47 percent. Things have a way of getting out there in today's day and age that in the early days of our nation didn't because it was just a private letter. And who knew that, you know, all those letters would be collected and published and the word would get out. Well, you mentioned Chester A. Arthur. Before they did have video and Twitter, he told a bunch of Republicans very early in his presidency, he says, well, we're all here privately. And so I can tell you that, yes, I was born in Canada. They say he was the original birther story, right, that he wasn't really born in America and therefore ineligible. And so he jokes about that, trying to be self-deprecating, but also insult his foes that, that believe he's not really eligible to be vice president and therefore can't be president. And that does get out there. And so then that haunts him for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I think no matter how safe you are, even though we have to be more vigilant today, you might still get, you might still get nailed if you make that quip off the cuff. And I, I don't think I want to live in a world where Al Gore can't make some quip. I mean, he's a former vice president. If the guy wants to make a quip, if Reagan wants to say something about the time and the heat of the campaign, as I think uh, George W. Bush said after his second midterm election, they asked him, he's sitting there with Nancy Pelosi and they're all they're all huggy and, and bipartisan and trying to say we're putting the country first. And he said, people say things during campaigns and they don't necessarily mean them. Now, now we're going to get to the work of governing. And I think that's tough on us listening, but this reminds us of that. Taft is, is in tears, for instance, at T.R.'s funeral. He's so sad. And it, it reminds us that maybe we do need to find that place where we hold everybody in at least some kind of respect and regard, because we're all going to say the bad thing at some point. 
Right, exactly. I mean, th- th- this is where humor becomes really, really important in diffusing some of this. And, you know, we can go back to the Reagan-Mondale race, and people had big concerns about Reagan's age. And so the question comes up in the debate, and Reagan totally you know, diffuses the issue saying, you know, I absolutely refuse for political purposes to make an issue out of the age and and inexperience of my opponent. Yep. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. (laughs) (laughs) And even Mondale in the debate, you watch the clip of that, and Mondale is cracking up too. Yep. So it's a good way to do it. And you know, when we think about the campaigning versus the hard work of governing, former New York Governor Mario Cuomo once said that we campaign in poetry and we govern in prose, which I think is so good that, you know, in the campaign, we end up saying things that um, are not realistic, perhaps. Um, and, and then once you're elected, you, you get down to the hard work of governing. That line that Reagan had was one that he came up with. It was kind of bugging him that they were insulting his age. And it was Roger Ailes, who I worked for when I worked with Fox. And he was telling a story about that. And he said that Reagan came to him and said, you know, there's something I'd really like to sling out. And this is exactly what we're talking about in 101 presidential insults. He said, but I don't know if I should because it might seem mean. And so Ailes said, well, tell me what you think it is. And he explained what became that retort that I will not exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. And as you said, you know, even Mondale can't help but crack up there because it's that's right. it, it's just well-delivered. And, and that's what I'm saying. I mean, now you put that in the mouth of another candidate, may not work so well, may not be delivered so perfectly, but here it is coming at the right moment. And perhaps what would have been the biggest silver bullet for Mondale, legitimate questions about the age of candidates and the health of candidates that we always have, it, it was just completely diffused. Whereas somebody like JFK looks so healthy that people didn't know that he had those health problems. It's, there's so much of it is perception. Mm-hmm. And I think when people read 101 presidential insults, they get that idea of what was really going on in their minds and sometimes the frustrations with that. If you thought that William Howard Taft or that Franklin Pierce or that James A. Garfield was really a flawed guy, Thomas Jefferson, you mentioned earlier, Theodore Roosevelt talking about him, it had to really st- stick in your craw. I mentioned Bob Dole saying, where's the outrage? That had to be frustrating. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people here that because every president has his boosters, his fans, his defenders, that had to be something that people said, hey, he didn't intend that as an insult. They want to defend from your book. For instance, when President Obama made a little quip in a speech about that Rutherford B. Hayes said when the first phone was installed in the White House, first telephone well, it's a great invention, but who would ever want to use it? <laughs> well, that wasn't really something that Rutherford B. Hayes said. And here you had all these Rutherford B. Hayes people, their great presidential library that, that's out there in Fremont, Ohio. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they all came to his defense and said, well, that's not accurate. I imagine that's something probably in this book. Some of these presidents would probably maybe want to spin it. I mean, they're inst- instinctual politicians, maybe even beyond the grave, and certainly their defenders are. Were there any things like that where people said, oh, you didn't really mean that as an insult, or maybe they wish they could take back? You know, I think that William Howard Taft may have wished that he hadn't said some of the things that he did in the 1912 campaign about Roosevelt, 
because it really pained him. This was a close relationship, and he didn't want to be attacking Roosevelt, but it was Roosevelt's attacks that really forced him to respond. I think that there are some presidents who are just very opinionated about other presidents. We've talked about Harry Truman and, and Richard Nixon, and they use this salty language, and they probably never felt the need to apologize about their language. Donald Trump actually seems to be proud of the insults that he lobs against Barack Obama, and he continually repeats them. So I think he's an example of a president who would be proud of his caustic comments. But I think with most of these presidents, when they made the statement, whether it's in writing or in a conversation or in their diary, they never intended or realized that Mike Purdy was going to be putting these in 101 presidential insults. They didn't know that. They're simply responding to the moment. You've got the story about Andrew Johnson, where James Polk is president, and he holds his New Year's Day reception for visitors at the White House, where they called it the executive mansion back then. And Johnson is just a congressman, been in Congress for five years. And Polk sees Johnson at the reception, but doesn't talk to him. And so that night, Polk confides to his diary about Johnson. He says, he's very vindictive and perverse in his temper and conduct. Well, a couple of things about that. One is Polk never thought that his diary would you know, be published and you know, quotes would be pulled out like that. And secondly, I think that that quote is a good example of what many people would probably say about Andrew Johnson. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it kind of captured the man's personality fairly well. It really is true. And I, I thought of that as I'm reading 101 presidential insults. You could see some of them saying, hey, historian of the future, what are you doing? Don't don't read my mail. Don't don't read my diary. See George, George Washington. I like to picture all the presidents up there discussing things and whatnot in the afterlife. And they'll say, see, George, you were right to burn all those letters. Look at what these historians are doing today. They want to see us at our worst. And it's not that. I think it's just an evolution of the country where we want to see them like us because we've lost so much of that in this modern age. We see them all the time. They're in our homes. Since FDR, they've been in our homes, at least in voice from the radio, but they're much more distant from us. It's a much larger country for one thing. There's many more people. So this is really a way to help not cut the legs off a giant, but to help bring them down and remind us that they are just like us. And maybe in, in the future, when we're watching politics, people get so frustrated with it, we can give some of these people a pass and say, well, maybe that is one they'd like to have back. Because I know in my own life, there's plenty of insults that I've slung out there, criticisms that I would like to have back. Sure. And, and I think there are some presidents who probably were very conscious of what history would say about them because there's a number of them who ended up burning their papers. Mm -hmm. It's actually something that I've been researching for a while and hope to do some writing on pulling all those together. But they didn't want the words that they wrote to get out there. So a lot of our history is obliterated by these men burning what they've written. 
It's too bad. I, I often lament that. I wish if, if I had a time machine, I could reach out and grab the hand with oh, the match, yes. right? And say, well, what are you doing? Like, I, I realize we don't have a right to that, but I feel like we do. We'd like to have it. And, mm-hmm. and this is why we encourage presidents through the law to preserve these things and try to keep the, at least the official documents. You're not allowed to erase everything. Louis Pacone, who I chatted with for his book on presidential births and the volume that he has about their deaths, writes, quote, In 101 Presidential Insults, Mike Purdy shows us that the art of the presidential insult is not a new phenomenon. And Lewis goes on to say, what has changed, however, is the platform, unquote. Now, as somebody who's in the media, as somebody who writes, talks to authors, the word platform is magic today. That's something that jumped out at me. It's important to have a platform, as you certainly do across social media and at presidentialhistory.com. You show us the art, as Lewis says. Many of these insults that came in private conversations, those are things that I think people will pick up the book. They'll, they'll get an experience. Maybe they'll be shocked at some of these guys that they would think never had much personality. This is something that, that colors you when you see an insult. I want to ask you, though, one final question that ends on a high-minded note. Your readers, myself, you, will probably never be president. The days are gone when you would just be a dark horse picked for VP, and then you'd go from that bucket of warm spit to to the big chair in the Oval Office, (laughs) one round place to another. What do you hope that we'll learn, though, to carry into our own lives, not just when we're watching candidates, watching debates, hearing some insults that are slung in private or public? Readers will be able to apply some of these in their own lives, even in their own careers, and maybe make them hold back that perfect tweetable insult in a column or something that they're going to write on a teleprompter script, say, if they're in the news business. What do you hope that people will take away from it? Because this is a thin book, but it has so much weight to it. That's a great question. And, you know, part of it comes from the actual title of the book and the subtitle. So it's 101 Presidential Insults what they really thought about each other, and what it means to us. What does it mean to us? So, I mean, my biggest hope for the book is that we will laugh and cry at the same time. You know, some of the quotes are laugh aloud funny, but it's also really sad to see some of the meanness of spirit that was expressed. So I hope that we will think about what each of us can do to create a more civil society where we don't personally demonize the humanity or the patriotism of others. And I hope that we can somehow learn to disagree with others agreeably. You know, the final sentence of my introduction of the book expresses well, I think, what I hope for politicians, what I hope for people what I hope for marriages, what I hope for the conversation around the Thanksgiving Day dinner table. And and here's what I wrote. May we collectively strive to value relationships over political dogma, encourage deep reconciliation out of our fractured friendships, and reset our political discourse from one of rancor to respect. So I hope that the book, while we laugh at it, will cause us to think, how do we treat others with respect and dignity and civility, and how can we create a more civil society? 
Well, Mike Purdy, you're most certainly not a squirrel head. I can say, I can say that. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> I've enjoyed that. And, that or it's, and it's too bad because I would like there to be documented somewhere that someone was called a squirrel head. But you, you certainly didn't earn that. You earned nothing but my praise here for 101 presidential insults. It's a very human look at our commanders in chief, how they criticized each other, how they used their spleen venting, that it's something that really is an enjoyable read. And we can speak to our better angels and speak to the broader electorate and just in our own lives. We, we don't want to not learn from a book like this and just say, well, I'm glad. I'm glad that he took it to Taft. When you're gone, you have a much different view and a different view of yourself. And it's sometimes the insults that endure. So worth thinking about. I read in your book that you're thinking about compiling some of the ones that didn't make the cut here at 101 into another book. You mentioned maybe doing one on presidential compliments, which, which would be great to read. TR and Taft would be in there as well. They had very nice, warm things to say about each other. Mm -hmm. All very educational, all very interesting, entertaining. And I'm so glad you spent the time with me today. Well, it's been a pleasure, Dean, talking with you. Again, the book is 101 Presidential Insults what they really thought about each other, and what it means to us. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. By buying the book there, you help us keep the life support system in our time machine humming like usual and support our campaign to bring you great history. Thanks to Mike Purdy for joining us and for sharing, as he puts it, a first-class dictionary of insults for all occasions. Find Mike online at presidentialhistory.com, Presidential Historian on Instagram, on Twitter at P-R-E-S History, or follow his Facebook page, Mike Purdy Presidential Historian. While you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, Instagram, or Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. That's it for this presidential installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And you can check out some of the Q&A written interviews at our blog on HistoryAuthor.com. iTunes subscribers, if you can take a minute to leave us a review, we'll vote for you the next election. We'll write your name right in there on the ballot. Well, until our next trip into the past together... Thanks so much for time traveling to Campaigns Past with us today, and hail to the Chief. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in 